Hello and welcome to More Games Than Time, I'm Lee. I'm Roger. And this week we've, well this week, I always say this week. This no, no, I can't edit that first. <laughs> <laughs> Leave it in, everybody will know the mistakes now. Uh, this month we've been playing some games and I talked to some very special guests, um, including some returning guests, about board games and mental health. So, I, I've been playing some board games. Mm, um, me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will say, both of these games that I'm going to talk about this month, I've played fewer than half a dozen times, which is less than what I normally like when we're doing these recordings. But at mm-hmm. the same time, I think we've always been very clear that they're not reviews, they're just us talking about games. Yeah, and certainly for me, this is my impression of a game much more than whether I think you, random you, will like it. So, Yeah. So, much to my surprise, the first game I'm going to talk about is um, Soaring Up the BGG Hotness List. Okay. And I'm, I'm going to say much to my surprise only because I barely logged into BGG the last few months and I didn't know. <laughs> uh, this was something that I pre-ordered and picked up at Essen last year. And it's Ark Nova by Matthias Vigger, uh, published by Feuerland, and Capstone Games, I believe, as well. Mm-hmm. Um. It's pretty good. This is interesting because I'm, I'm seeing some very divergent opinions on this. Right. You know, the majority definitely seems to be, yeah, this is the new terraforming Mars. I love it. And then, yeah. and then there are people who have specific objections, which we'll come back to because I want to see I'm sure. what you say. Um, so I've heard the terraforming Mars comparisons. I can't make those comparisons because I've never played terraforming Mars because sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. <laughs> this on the other hand was um, it was a theme I could really get behind um, fun fact I, I'm a fellow of the Zoological Society of London mm-hmm. so uh, zoos and conservation um, that is you know, so that's something I can get behind and it's the first board game I'm aware of that treats zoos in a grown up way by which I mean what zoos are now not I- just a menagerie for taking your kids around yeah um, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, somebody out there probably knows something different, but I think all board games themed around zoos have basically been put all these animals in a pen somewhere and score points for it. That certainly seems to be the general it, it's set collection of some sort with, yeah. with a zoo theme. Yeah. And this, you know, this has got elements of that. Um, you're collecting, um, you're building up a, a polyomino board, um, which are pen sizes, basically. Um, you have some sort of concessions and the normal sort of zooey things there that you're doing. Um, but then on top of that, you're drafting um, animals, cards, to go into those pens. Um, the bigger the animal broadly, the bigger the pen size you need to put in it. Mm-hmm. But then you're also scoring points, not just for the attractiveness of your zoo, um, but also for research projects you get involved with. And potentially for releasing animals back to the wild as well. Mm-hmm. So you're juggling these different options of building up a zoo, but then also at the same time sometimes taking animals out of your zoo, 
when you release them. Yeah. But, but this isn't, this isn't a multiple ways to victory thing. You are still going to have to be building up your zoo, presumably. You can't just do it. So you're, you're scoring in, you're scoring in multiple different ways. It's not a, it's not a, you know, this is your victory points track. Most points wins. Um, there's conservation points, there's attractiveness points, and there's research points. So mm-hmm. you can choose to go in one particular direction. Um, I'm trying to remember which it is. I think it's the conservation points and the research points. Move You're moving in opposite directions. Oh, no, conservation points and attractiveness points. You're moving in opposite directions. Mm-hmm. And that's your main score at the end of the game, is your difference between those two. Difference. Does that make sense? Yeah. So if you if you is is if you imagine a, a straight line track, it isn't, but imagine it is, and you start off with a counter at one end and a counter at the other. Mm-hmm. So one's moving left to right, one's moving right to left. Sure. Okay. So they're going to cross over at some point, and that's your score, the difference at the end of the game between those two points. Okay, having crossed over. Yeah. So I mean, potentially they don't cross over, and you get a negative score. That is possible. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, but what it does mean, it, the, I don't think I've played the same game twice yet. And as I say, I've, I've played it fewer than half a dozen times. So that's not a, a big sample size to go on. Um, but there is an enormous deck of cards that you're drafting from. Yeah. Um, I've stu- you, you, you know, it, it is one deck that you stand on the board at the start of the game. And it's as deep, I think, as four or five decks of playing cards. It is a big deck of cards. And there is some overlap between those cards. So, for example, you might have the same card for birds as you do for herbivores or for carnivores. Mm-hmm. Same effect, different animal that you're working got, with. Um, classifications of this card is a this and that and the other. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, yes, a huge deck of cards like that, there is randomness. But, even though you're not seeing many of those cards, in a solo game at least, and in a multiplayer game, you're probably going to see more, but the ones you want are going to get taken. Mm-hmm. <laughs> even though there's uh, even though there's a huge deck of cards and you're not seeing many of them, there's never been a game where I've said, I- I'm completely stuck, the randomness of this has killed it. It's more a case that I've got to adapt my strategy to the cards that are coming out and make take advantage of the opportunities that are available to me. Sure. Um, which is randomness done well. It means that I can't just have the same strategy every game. Hmm. Yeah, the one of the major criticisms I've heard is similar, I think, to what I've, I've felt playing Terraforming Mars, which is mm-hmm. I'm being asked on, you know, turn two... Here, here are five cards, and any of them could be great if the right other cards come out. But you don't mm-hmm. know, and you don't know what those other cards are going to be, and you've got to pick one of them. And to me, that feels frustrating. Yeah, um, and I think that could be potentially more frustrating multiplayer than solo. Mm-hmm. So there's this weird dichotomy, I think, where you do get to draw cards from the top of the deck. Yeah. Um, there's also an offer of five cards, of which, depending on how advanced you are on the research track, that governs how many of, whether you can take for the first card or the fourth card or the fifth card, 
the higher you are on the research track, the more of those positions are available to you to draft from. So you do have a reasonable amount of choice about what you're going to be taking. Yeah. Um, in a multiplayer game, as I say, there's going to be more competition for those cards that are face-up that you can see. Mm-hmm. But there is still that potential to say, well, that card is going to work with my strategy. I can see how they fit together. I'm going to take that card and then try and get that one. Yeah. And yes, there's no guarantee that other one's still going to be there. But if you've got the card that combos well with it, you're going to have to be playing with a complete dick for them to take it just to screw you over and it doesn't benefit them. Sure. <laughs> and yes, uh, people and like that do you... exist, but I suggest you play with some other people. <laughs> and from what you're saying, there are enough different things you could be trying for that probably the same card is not going to be useful to both you and them or not going to be a prime thing to both you and them. It, exactly right, exactly right. I mean, I, I watched a couple of playthroughs before then, before playing it myself, and I think... I think it was Rado's playthrough. He got very excited when um, a, a, I think a single carnivore card came out at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, those are the ones that I really want to be getting. And he, he made out that the carnivore strategy is better than all the other strategies. Mm. It, it isn't. <laughs> like I said, all the carnivore cards, exactly the same effects for herbivores, for birds, for reptiles. I think possibly he hadn't played the game many times before filming. And that was the one that the strategy he'd adopted the time around before and it had worked for him. Sure. So even more than usual, this is going to be a, a you know, consider it over multiple players rather than my one experience. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, as I say, I mean, the, the first time I played it, I really enjoyed it. I, I, I think our first game I did go down that carnivore strategy, possibly because I'd watched the playthrough and partly because those were the cards that came out and it worked for me. Sure. Um, subsequent games, I went down other roads. And my scoring was pretty consistent. Okay. Um, so the, as I say, I think that the randomness is, it's something that's driving tactical play rather than strategic. Um, but mm. it's not something that's breaking the game in any way for me. Okay. What about, I mean, I've, I've seen pictures of it. It's clearly f- fairly solid on table presence, even though it's basically just cards. It, so, yeah, it is. Um, I mean, it, it takes up a huge amount of table space, far more than I think it needs to, um, mm-hmm. and for that reason comes in a bigger box than I think it needs to. Yeah. Um, when, I guess almost a year ago, last last summer as we're recording this, um, Foyerland released some images online of the cards, and I confess I was one of the people in that thread that went, oh my god, these are awful, I assume they're prototypes. Mm, I, I had uh, a look at some of those and was not super impressed, yeah. No, it turns out they are a lot better in person than those images suggested. Mm-hmm. Uh, normally, I hate having photos in games as opposed to artwork. Here, it, it does actually work. It's okay. Um, and the actual graphic design elements, again, I don't know why, they look really ugly on the screen. But in person, they're functional, they work, they're not hideous to look at. So, uh, yeah, I don't have an issue with it in that regard. That's interesting. I wonder how many of the people complaining about the look have been playing on something like Tabletop Simulator. Possibly. Which might give a similar impression. Possibly. I mean, it's interesting that when they put those first images up, and as I say, there was the long list of people complaining, including myself, Foyland came on and said, look, you know, in in playtesting, everybody's really liked this, it mm-hmm. works, uh, we're not changing it. Yeah. And... At the time, I thought, well, why have you shown these images then? If, if you're not looking for feedback, <laughs> this is just a bad PR move. Um, but yeah, I, having now played it 
and played with those cards in person, yeah, they're fine. Well, this is good. Um, I, I am going to compare it with terraforming Mars because it seems like the obvious comparison. And um, so, someone should. This is not. This is not <laughs> helpful to you. Yeah, but you've played this. I've played TM. Uh, yeah. I, I don't love TM. Uh, it does seem as if. Hmm, I, w- I think I might be slightly concerned, and I suspect this is really a matter of the attitude of the individual player. I mean, you, you could you know, squish down the flavour and say, okay, I want a African herbivore, so I'm just looking at the, the tags on the top of the card. Mm-hmm. I suspect that would be less fun if, if you're not thinking of it in terms of, yeah, I'm actually you know, simulating a zoo-type thing. It, well, it, it could lose its flavour. I suppose if you wanted to look at it as... Um... Yeah, if you were wanting to look at it as a sim game and say, well, I want to be a zoo specialising in African primates. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, if you, this is what I say about the difference between it being a tactical game rather than a strategic game. You can be a zoo specialising in African primates. Mm-hmm. But if you go into the game thinking that's what you're going to do, you're likely going to be disappointed and struggle. Sure. If that, that's something that's going to emerge, by you know, sort of a quarter to halfway through the game, you're going to you're going to be looking back and going, okay, well, this is what I'm doing. Mm. I, I was thinking more along the lines that if I if I'm playing this, I want to be pausing and thinking, yeah, okay, you know, I've got an Okapi, or I'm building mm. neat architectural features or whatever. Not, mm. I've got another green tag and here's a brown card. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, to a certain extent, that's going to depend on the player, isn't it? I yeah. think, you know, for me, I, I was embracing the theme. Um, but that's not to say it's an especially thematic game. Mm, sure. um, I mean, you know, you, you're comparing it with another game that a lot of other people have compared with. Which, I, which I really don't find thematic at all, which is... But unused. it suggests, yeah. but if it is that similar mechanically, it suggests that, you know, the mechanic, that the mechanics can be adapted to a variety of different settings and they sure. are more settings than themes. Sure. Yeah, that, that's the thing we, we're going to talk about one of these days. <laughs> yeah, we, we'll, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Um, yeah, so it's, it's just that, as I say, I think it depends on what kind of game you are, whether you're looking at it from a purely mechanical point of view or whether you want to get into the theme and whether you allow yourself to do that. And mm. to, to a greater or lesser extent, I suppose that applies to all games, doesn't it? That some occupy the, some are more towards one end of that scale than the other. Yeah, and I'm certainly not consistent. I mean, what I usually, uh, we talk about abstraction gaps for me. Mm. What I usually say is I'd rather pure abstract or utterly thematic, but there are games that straddle that that I still enjoy. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm inconsistent. <laughs> so that was, uh, Ark Nova by Matthias Vigor. And, um, yeah, th- this next one needs a bit of a disclaimer, uh, because I have worked for the publisher. I'm planning mm-hmm. to work for the publisher again. I have demoed this quite a few times. I, in fact, I have 58 of the 91 logged plays of it on BGG. <laughs> and at least three of the others were by people who were playing it with me. Uh, this is War of the Nine Realms. Uh, designed by Robbie Munn in 2018. Uh, I don't know his other stuff. He's also designed Summoner's Isle and Sumo Gnomes, but you now know about, <laughs> as much about them as I do. <laughs> I've literally never heard of them before you mentioned them just now. <laughs> so this is this is a troops on a map game, and that's not normally a style of game I enjoy, um, partly because I do actual terrain and measurement wargaming. 
Yeah. Uh, not very often, but I'm quite happy to do that if that's the sort of thing I want to do. Um, but also because there is a, a classic problem, uh, often described as A and B fight, C wins. So yeah. if first, uh, you know, side A and side B get, get into a fight and then side C can keep its forces intact and then swoop down and pick off the winner who's mm-hmm. tired from the fight in, in a broad sense. Um, but this is a game that won me over. And I think a big part of it is the blood cauldron rule. Basically, mm-hmm. the, the, sorry, the, the context is, is this is, um, something like Ragnarok, uh, or at least a battle yeah. on the way to Ragnarok. Uh, it, it is Norse mythology themed, and you you are trying to um, you know you might have the uh, Aesir, you, you might have uh, ice giants, yeah. And every time you do a wound to an enemy, you score a blood point. Mm-hmm. And when you when you get to eighteen blood points, and there's nothing that takes these away from you once you've done them. And when you get to eighteen, you win. Yeah. So. If I sit off in the corner while you and somebody else fight, um, then one of you is going to get to the 18 blood points, even yeah. if your troops are wiped out. Yeah. And it's a, it's a really simple idea, and it, I think it's a brilliant idea. Uh, that was the thing that seriously got me into it. It's, it's also fairly... Hmm, it's not one of those build-things-up games. You, you start with the troops you're going to have. Yeah. Um, you've got four... Frontliners and fi- um, five with specific powers, which might be you know, ranged attacks or special things mm-hmm. they can do. Um, your leader can bring the grunts back onto the field, yeah. So you don't run out of them, but it does take actions. And uh, is is action economy a, a, a <laughs> thing we can describe games as? Because that's what it feels like to me. You, you've got your nine actions in the turn. Um, you know, resurrecting one of your troops is going to cost one of those. Moving. Mm-hmm. Or attacking is going to cost one of those. And you, a a yeah. thought occurs to me. Sorry to interrupt mm. you. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, yeah, full disclosure, I, I played this with you two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever played Blood Rage? I've not played it, but I've seen. I've, I've looked over games, and that just didn't grab me the same way. No, but there are there are some similarities. I think, mm. which is why why I thought it was worth mentioning. Yeah, so I mean, it's a similar thing that you, I mean, it's, it's a more cartoonized, um, I suppose, Norse setting. Mm-hmm. Um, similar thing that you've got these action points that you use on your turn. Um, and some actions cost more than others. Yeah. Um, and you're fighting for control of territories in that one. You can score points by, um, controlling those territories, you can also score points by winning battles or by losing battles. Mm-hmm. Which, with the, the game that I played, you um, in the War of the Nine what, Worlds realms, War of the Nine realms. Um, again, I I had that ability to score some points from losing troops okay. very early on. I noticed you deliberately decided to take out my unit that was <laughs> going to give me that ability. <laughs> But yeah, th- so there is some overlap there. Um, and I just, I was just curious whether that was something you had any experience of. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I've, I've seen it. I've not played it. So I mean, that we, we may have our audience saying, "Well, yeah, but it's just like this in Blood Rage," mm. which, which was published a few years earlier. Yeah. Um, one, one thing that uh, I don't know if it's in there or not is you've got uh, counterattacking. So mm-hmm. mo- most of these fights are fa- fairly small and local affairs. 
yeah. uh, you know, I, I walk over to you and hit you with an axe or whatever. If you if you have actions saved, you can spend one to counterattack me. Yeah. Or, so there there is yeah. more of an emphasis on combat in this game. Yeah. Um, I mean, territorial. Uh, there, there isn't a territorial claim rule. I no. So I mean, blood, blood rage. The emphasis shifts it, to to uh, area control, and it's got that card drafting mechanism driving the game as well, which mm. is also absent in this game. Yeah. Um, the, now, there is a deck of cards uh, that mostly modify combat, but in terms of the powers you have, you start with what you're going to have. Yeah. Uh, and some some of them can be costly to use, but basically you 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 see the full array right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, another another nice thing about the counter attack is it reduces downtime. I mean, if, if A is attacking B, then it's probably on A's turn, but B's got, B's gonna have cards to play to mitigate the attack and possibly yeah. a counter attack to do. So there's generally a bit more involvement going on, which is nice. Yeah. Um, uh, modular terrain, don't know if that's a consideration. Well, it, it increases variety. Hmm. Uh, you, you may notice that, uh, in this War of the Nine Realms there are only four realms. <laughs> I, I did notice that. <laughs> um, the I, I um, did actually chat with Lawrence because I'm sorting out my demos at the upcoming UK Games Expo, yeah. and uh, he says the other, basically the other half, which is, will be a standalone game uh, by Fire and by Death, is on the way. No, yeah. no formal plans at this moment. It'll probably be a Kickstarter or similar. Okay. Uh, and then the ninth realm will be an expansion that you can attach to either. And obviously, if you then want to combine everything together, you can. Right. Does that mean it's technically possible eventually to have a nine-player game? It should be, yeah. I mean, I, I, don't I, think I imagine that would be utter chaos with a lot of downtime. Yeah, um, the, the, it is. Uh, other than what I've said about counterattacks and so on, it is. It is basically take turns. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I've played it with four, mm-hmm. and that's gone pretty well because generally. Particularly once you start getting into things, it's pretty clear what you're going to want to do. You don't need to take a long time to I, think I'm, about what you're planning. I'm curious. But so, I mean, you, know, you mentioned up front this thing about if you sit back, you're going to lose, which <laughs> is exactly what happened in our game. Um, you and I sort of went at each other from the off because you'd played it before. It was immediately apparent to me that, as you say, you're going to win by fighting. Yeah. <laughs> That's all it comes down to. Um, Paul, the, th- the other person we're playing with, who... Um, is a previous special guest co-host of this show. Hi, Paul. Um, Paul sat back and trailed us by a long way. I think it was sort of one point difference between you and I to win the game, and Paul was a long way back at the end of it. Yeah. In a four-player game, did it sort of turn into two people fighting each other and the other two people fighting each other? Because um, I could see that happening. The... Mm, I'm, I'm thinking of a particular game... Um... When I was demoing, and this was yeah, a group of people who obviously played together a lot, and one mm. of them was not super keen, but yeah, she was going along with it, and she eventually pulled off the win with the Dark Elves, the guys you were playing, who, yeah. who are probably the most complex of, of the uh, factions. Oh, I chose well. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, I mean, sent, sent her down and said, um, "Tell Lawrence you get a free T-shirt," <laughs> but um, it pretty much. Um, You'd get A and B fighting, and then C would be sneaking around the edges, trying trying to um, get in get in a wound here mm. or there on somebody who was who was uh, damaged, and then D would be doing the same thing on the other side. It, yeah. it did all pretty much pile up into one. 
Right, okay. I, I suspect if if I were um, more familiar with the game, and I, I really ought to be familiar with the game, but I haven't, I, I haven't done <laughs> a lot you're of... You're the world's uh, leading expert. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't done a lot of um, set-up of it, because mm-hmm. usually I've been doing a standard demo set-up. Yeah, yeah. Um, I suspect one could fine-tune uh, the arrangements of the terrain and how many tiles are involved mm-hmm. to say, right, we're all going to have a fairly small space to cram into, or yeah. we can sneak around for a bit first, and that for a different flavour. Mm. Uh, the other thing is, I, uh, I'm i not really a art-critic-type person, uh, but even I can see that it looks a bit old-fashioned, uh, particularly the box cover art. Mm-hmm. Although I don't think it's unattractive. I don't think it's bad, but it, but it looks old in a way I can't otherwise define. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, big plus point for me uh, is that it's standees rather than miniatures. And indeed the standees have the symbol so you can check it on your they're, character they're sheet. Func- they're functional. I mean, I must admit I... They, they have the hit point, the defence value, that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I must admit for me standees are sort of my... my Final choice. I'd rather miniatures or wooden bits or tokens than standees, but that's a personal okay. thing. It for something like this, where where I've got different sorts of troops, it, I'm going to need to recognise. It's functional. It's, it's pretty much the first choice for me. So, well, I, I think you'd have the same. You could do the same thing with tokens. You could. Um, yeah, you could make a. Uh, this is a hex grid. You you could make a token base. Facing doesn't matter, so that would be relatively yeah. simple. Yeah. I think that would do no harm. It would be a bit more fiddly, but yeah. One one of the nice things about it is you don't tend to get a lot of stuff sitting on on the board other than the troops. You you can change the terrain, yeah, which is sometimes very important, and in some games it does almost nothing. Uh, but that's about the only thing that's actually sitting out on the board. Otherwise, yeah, it's just so you can troops. see fairly clearly. And uh, and if you're playing the game right, then you're going to be losing those troops off the board fairly quick as well. So it's going to be even more clear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this, this is not not one to fight defensively. No, but it's, again, I think was uh, was where Paul slipped up. I think he fell into that trap of wanting to like these are my things. I need to protect them. And I think that was what reminded me of Blood Rage, as I say, where really that isn't the case. You just, you want to get troops out there and fighting quick. And if they lose, well, that's part of the game. Clearly, I ought to try this to, for, to make a more informed comparison. <laughs> And then you can say how much you hate it. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the other thing is, um, because uh, almost all of those games I've played were, were demo games, this, this was the first time I've actually got my own copy out. And mm-hmm. I am now very, very keen to um, get it out at, at other things. It's, it's not That's quite... It, I mean, it, it, it's, I think, on the edge of what people expect of a modern board game. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I think there's a certain school of... British designers that are very much sort of one leg still in tabletop wargaming and miniatures and that kind of thing. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah, when I think of things like um, oh, Britannia, which I assume you've played at ha. some point. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think it was compulsory if you were playing board games in the 80s or 90s. Yeah. Yeah, which is... Mm, or, or, Constrained in some ways, surprisingly free in others. Yeah, yeah, that sort of template I feel so it still sort of pervades a certain school of British game design. Mm. But yeah, the, this is a game I, I definitely want to get out more, and 
That's War of the Nine Realms. Very good. So, the other thing I've been playing this month, Roger, is Minerva. Which, Mm. I believe, came out originally in something like 2015. This is Minerva by Hisashi Hiyashi. Um, A designer I think we've mentioned before, but not played any of their games. I I believe I'm right in saying he designed trains as well. Uh, Yokohama, trains, rising sun, spring railway. Yeah, yeah. So this is a game, I say, I think 2015 was the first edition, which was an English and Japanese edition. Um, two years later, it was one of the first of the deluxe board game um, Kickstarters, complete with wooden bits mm-hmm. to replace the tokens and metal coins and all the rest of it. Um <laughs> As you might expect with a deluxe edition like that, it got a bit of hype at the time. Um, it's kind of disappeared without a trace since. And at the time, the game I always saw it being compared to was one that is one of my favourite games, and you've played with me twice now, which is Glenmore. Mm-hmm. Having now played Minerva, I don't understand the comparisons. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, just to say, you've, you've played Glenmore with me twice. If you were to try and sort of identify the things that made Glenmore Glenmore, what, what would you say? Um, sort of drafting-ish off a rondel and getting, getting those tiles into particular configurations, I would say. Yeah, ne- neither of those things exist in this game. Okay. <laughs> so... You, it, it is a, a tile-laying game, um, and in the first edition, at least, I think the graphic design bore some similarities to the graphic design in Glenmore, and I think that's where the, the similarities end. Um, this mm-hmm. is a Civ game in the grand tradition of board game Civ games. Um, you're scoring points for culture, um, very, three different types of culture, and especially for military. Yeah. Um, what's, you're drafting tiles from an offer. It's not like the, the time track in, um, in Glenmore. It's more like a, a deck builder that you've got, uh, an offer of tiles out for each round. Um, and you, you're free to choose which one you want. Um, the round structure is what I tend to think of as the pandemic round structure. So there's a big <laughs> stack of tiles, which is divided into six stacks at the, during setup. Each mm-hmm. one of those six stacks has one end round tile shuffled into it, and then it's put back together in one big pile again. Okay. Yeah. So as I say, it's what I think of as the pandemic round structure, where you've got a big stack of cards. At some point, roughly every six, you're going to draw an end of round, but you don't know exactly when it's coming. And if you're unlucky, two of them could come in immediate succession. They can, yeah. Um, so in this instance, um, because it's because it's broken up the amount of tiles that are going into that offer, it might mean you've got a round where there's only one or two tiles that you can take in mm-hmm. that round, um, and another one is going to be far more. Yeah. So you dra- take drafting. Drafting is the wrong word. You're taking those tiles um, and placing them into your 
tableau in front of you. Um, the way that the the tiles are triggering <clears throat> is it's a little bit more um, straightforward, but old fashioned, I think, than in Glenmore. So you place them down. You have to place them orthogonal to other tiles. At the start of the game, you have nine residences, mm-hmm. um, which are in your yeah. So they're your player residence tiles. On your turn, instead of taking a tile from the offer and placing it into your grid, you can place one of these residences. When you do that, you choose an orthogonal direction from that residence tile. So up, down, left, right. Mm-hmm. And activate all the tiles in that direction in a straight line. Okay, so this, I, I can see where that's a little connected with Glenmore in, in that you, you can't just activate everything. You have to, there is the special element of you want to place things so that they will be activated as a group. Yeah, but it is always rows and columns. It's none of, it's not, you know, you place a tile and it's activating the tiles around it. Place sure. a tile, nothing happens. Mm-hmm. You activate them by placing this residence tile, which as I say, will then activate in a straight line. Yeah. Until it hits another residence tile. <laughs> so really, you can activate each row or column twice. Once from each end. Yeah. Effect. Yeah. Um, there is, uh, an addendum to that. Which is at the end of each round during scoring, you can choose to buy a worker. Um, I guess it's uh, Roman themed, so you know, probably a slave. Um, you can buy them either with money or with military might. Hmm. Yeah, um, let's be subtle here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you can, instead of placing a residence, place one of those workers onto a, an existing residence. Mm-hmm. So you can, in that way, activate those again that you've already activated. But that's more expensive than placing another residence, which you're going to be doing anyway. It is. And the cost of those workers, slaves, <laughs> increases the more you place. Mm-hmm. And the first one, the first two, I think, are five money or one military. And then the second two, uh, ten money or two military. And you can place a fifth one, I forget the cost, but then you can't have any more. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's basically it. So you're trying to build up your, I don't know, city, nation, wh- whatever it is. Um, it probably does tell you in the theme book if there is any flavour text. Uh, I city, I believe. City, you believe. I'll, I'll go along with city. Um, but the fact that I think city-state is probably more accurate. As I say, the main way you're scoring points is through military. Mm. Um, so at the end of every round during scoring, the first thing you do is compare your military strength with the other players. The player that's first takes the first place tile, which is worth more points than the second place tile, mm. which is worth more points than the third place tile. It's up to four players. I think there is no fourth place tile. Yeah. Um, you also score points for temples at the end of the game. They'll give you special scoring depending on any temples you've built. Um, and you score points for, as I say, culture. There's three different kinds of culture, which are music, writing, and theatre, I think. Um, those don't do a first and second place thing. 
And weirdly, even in the deluxe edition, there's nothing which helps you keep track of your score in those categories. Okay. It actually says in the rule book to remember. (laughs) (laughs) I remember what the spots were, as a great man once said. It's a really weird thing. But, I mean, on on the other hand, it doesn't roll over from round to round, which I guess is why there's no tokens for it. So, it it was getting added on to your overall score in some way, or...? So, what you do is, if you've got a building that produces culture, if you activate it in that round, let's say it produces you two culture, at the end of the round, remember you've scored two culture. Mm-hmm. If and... you, you then go around the table, oh, has anybody else scored any song culture? Mm-hmm. Yes, I scored one. Well, I've won, so I'll take the scoring thing for this round. Okay. <laughs> this reminds me a little bit of uh, Eon's End, which I don't think we've talked about on the podcast. Uh, mm-hmm. It's basically a deck building game in which you're, you have a currency that is called Ether. Yeah. And you're generating this during your turn and you're spending it during your turn and anything you've got left at the end of the turn goes. And one of the standard things I've had when demoing it is people saying, where are the Ether tokens? Well, there aren't any because you generate it and then you spend it. Yeah. You need three, you, you put down the cards that will generate three, then you've spent the three. Yeah. So, I mean, it is, it's, it is similar to that. Um, you know, you, you're not going to get it every round anyway. You only get it when you activate that tile. Mm-hmm. Um, and depending on, you know, you might do that at the end of the round if it's your last move in the turn. Um, on the other hand, you might do it right at the beginning, so you've just got to remember it. And also, presumably, potentially, there are multiple sorts. Is it multiple sorts of culture? So you might have sort of two song, one theatre, or yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so I, I think you know it, it would have perhaps been better if there were some tokens to track it, and I, and I guess you could proxy something else in. Hmm. Um, there are some. I was going to say idiosyncrasies. There are some errors in the rulebook. <laughs> Um, I think even during setup, it mentions for three and four players or for two players, you remove some of these bits and the bits it says to remove are just, it, it's described wrong, but <laughs> on the bits themselves, it's clear which bits you remove. So it's not yeah. a huge issue. Um, at the end of a round, once the first player passes, other players can carry on playing, but for every turn that they take, they have to play the pay the player that's passed some money. Oh, that's nice. So, yeah, I mean, obviously yeah. there are lots of games in which first to pass ends the round, but I, I, I like that way of you can if you've got the resources. Yeah, and it, is, it does make for an interesting um, decision point, I suppose, that you know, I, I can keep going and I can get those things, but it's going to cost me. So how important is it that I do that? Because, and, of course, once... Once the rounds end, any remaining tiles in that offer are going to be wiped. So if you want it, you're going to have to go and get it. But how much do you really want it? And a certain amount of catch-up mechanism as well. If I only had two things I could do, then I'm going to pass early. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's interesting. Really, money is... that That's, that's the only use for money in the game. Hmm. Um, and you... Or you, you can use three coins for one resource... So there is that other resource, that other use if you've got a lot of money. Yeah. Um, you can at any time trade one resource for three money. Oh, so one resource for one money. 
Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 So um, and it, then it's it, it's worth more if it's the thing you actually want, but you can yeah, use universal exactly. money. Um, and at the end of the game, um, you count up resources and money together and divide by three for how many points that will give you. Mm-hmm. Um, one reason I always wanted to, to play this, as I say, Glenmore is one of my favourite games, but doesn't have official solo rules. This does. Yeah. Um, so I mean, partly I wanted to see whether it would be adaptable to Glenmore. Of course, because of the differences I just met, we've already mentioned, time track, etc., it, it, you couldn't adapt it in that way. Um, but it does do something interesting, I think. So it's entirely beat your own score. It's it's not um, going against an AI or anything. But what it says is when you're drawing the, the tiles to place in the offer, instead of drawing them individually, you draw them in pairs. Okay. And when you draft them, you have to choose one of those two as a pair out of that pair and discard the other. Okay, so a sort of simulated drafting opponent. Yeah, it's such a simple way to do it, and it works really effectively. Because, you know, if 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 the pairs come out and you want both of those, well, you're going to have to choose one. Hmm. And so, I mean, that works quite well. It could obviously also, get very frustrating, but that's kind of yeah. the point. Well, exactly, exactly. It, is, it, it simulates that, oh, he's taken the tile I wanted quite well. Um, mm. Without it feeling too random, because you, you've got ownership over that, you, you know that if you choose this one, the other one's going. Yeah, and at the same time, it doesn't get any special cognitive burden on you. You, you don't have to think, oh well, which does my boss opponent regard as the best at this point, or anything like yeah. that. No, so that that works quite well, and the, uh, there is uh, the thresholds in the back of the scoring book for how well we've done. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, as a solo game, it plays quickly as well. It says uh, it says sixty to ninety minutes playtime on the box. I would say a solo game is probably half an hour, yeah. give or take. So it's um, sort of half an hour per player ish, plus or yeah, minus. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, I've, I'm not quite sure why it disappeared so quickly. I think it's a good game. Um, on the other hand, yeah, it's. It's not a top ten game of all time, and those you know, there's a lot of good games that get overshadowed and kind of disappeared. Mm, but as we talked about, you know, that there is nothing wrong with this game, but maybe there were just three hundred other games that 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 uh, month. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, to say, you know, it's one of these, you know, one of the earliest games I was aware of on um, on Kickstarter that were these sort of Euro-ish games that were getting a, a deluxe edition with all the all the unnecessary bling. Hey. Um. And whether it was a, a marketing thing, maybe retail wasn't quite caught up with that at that point. I, I have no idea. Um, I think you can still find copies of it fairly cheap online. You know, even sort of four or five years after it came out, it just didn't sell well. Uh, looking on BGG, there seem to be uh, copies on the geek market for sort of twenty to forty. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I think there's some retail stores in the UK that have still got it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, so that's uh, that's Minerva by Hisashi Hiyashi. Uh, the other one of mine is, is another game from 2018, um, Realm of Sand by Jihua Wei, mm. which is another one that, that there was quite a bit of fuss when it was launched, and then it sank without trace. I, I picked up my copy at Essen, and I've, I'm not sure I've ever actually seen another copy since then. Right. I'm starting to think we should have called our podcast Sank Without a Trace. <laughs> 
if we if we talk about anything other than the new hotness, it's going to be games that sack without trace, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, th- there are a few games from 2018 that are now regarded as classics, but there isn't isn't much room for for a lot, no. a lot of them. It's a very, very short lifespan for a lot of board games. Maybe Sack Without a Trace might be a new T-shirt going up in the store soon. <laughs> oh, possibly. There's nothing wrong with this game, but... <laughs> anyway, um, so this is... Um, I think Splendor is probably the primary influence. Uh, it's a combination of polyomino game and then claiming things based on the arrangements of the polyominoes. Right. So you you have a circle of pieces which are e- each of them is three bits uh, and some some are three squares either mm-hmm. in a straight line or an L shape and some are red some are black some are green and they they do have uh, shapes on them in case right. of color vision deficits. Um, on your turn, you will take one of the two that is available. Uh, mm-hmm. You place it on your board. You then immediately replace it with the individual with individual squares of that color. Um, because right. you, you then put it back in the circle for somebody else to claim on a, on a later turn. And what you're trying to do is build up a pattern that matches one of the cards that's in the layout. You've got uh, three rows of four cards each. Mm-hmm. And, you, and you can mirror reverse if you want to. Right. Uh, it, it does start to get a bit formulaic in places, I think, because the first row of things you can get is always stuff you can do with just those basic red, uh, red, black, greens, mm-hmm. and they will always get you another red, black, green. Uh, you, right. you, you can get a, a permanent disc, which uh, on your turn, instead of taking a polyomino, you can place up to three of your stock of permanent discs, and when those mm-hmm. are used... Ah, sorry, I should have said, when, when, when you claim a thing, th- those pieces you use to claim it go back in the pool. Right. But if it's a disc, it comes back to you, so you can, you potentially use it again without having to pick up the right polyomino yeah. of a new thing. Uh, the second row always produce a blue or yellow disc. Mm-hmm. And the third row always require blue or yellow and give you no reward. Um, but they give you lots of points. Mm-hmm. So that can sometimes feel a bit, a bit, um, to me, overstructured, but I think it works. Uh, there's also a, a, a cunning endgame mechanism. Uh, each, most cards have a score, uh, right. and some of them also have an hourglass number, and when a player, uh, and this works the same in solo and multiplayer, has got ten hourglasses, Mm-hmm. Uh, the game is over. Uh, well, not, the game is not immediately over. You finish the round, but uh, right. basically that's the, that triggers the end, mm-hmm. and then high score wins. Uh, the, the, there is a supposed theme about you know magic has gone weird, and and the, the queen is um, constraining the magic, and and her, her faithful wizards are rebuilding the city, and so on. But basically, <laughs> <laughs> this doesn't really matter a whole lot. You're making patterns, yeah. Um, it's quite pretty. Um, I, I'm particularly fond of the sort of blueprinty looking uh, layouts on on the uh, cards that you're claiming. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is there is the queen meeple, which is a a, a custom meeple, uh, which is perhaps not the greatest of things, but it's it's a nice tactile presence. And this is another of those. Clearly, this was never going to win major game design awards. Yeah, but. It's a nice combination of spatial puzzle and um, 
a bit a bit of planning of okay, you know, I, I want to get this card, and then I, then I look over at my opponent's boards and I see I see what they're building up, and okay, they 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 clearly want that card, so I can't rely on that because they're going to finish before I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that there is a solo mode which disrupts things a bit. Okay, um, but you can have a certain amount of okay. That 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 is the um, sequence I go to try to get through. And then that would be disrupted by something, and now I have to replan and that sort of thing. So yes, yeah. that's, that's uh, altogether. It, it's not a so certainly not a not a heavy game, not a particularly long game. Um, probably with, with experienced players, probably about half an hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, though though yeah, it can can take longer if people are slow, obviously. And yeah, it, it's. Completely vanished, like, like so many games that I like, <laughs> um, and I, I, I think it deserves ju- just a bit of attention. Right, that's Realm of Sand. So, you lent me Xenon Profiteer. Hmm. Um, I thought you told me this was a deck builder. Well, there's quite a lot of that in there, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not convinced it is. Okay. I think it's a, a shedding game and a racing game in deck builder's clothing. Okay. So... Yes, you've got these piles of cards out that you're taking cards into ostensibly your deck and you're cycling through that deck. Um, but the, the aim of the game is to, to get rid of cards from that deck. And I, I think you mentioned, um, when we spoke about this previously that you thought the game is trying to do something different with that garbage card thing in your hand. Mm. Yeah. So, as I say, I think for, for that reason, for me, I think it's a shedding game. You're trying to get rid of this stuff. Um, yeah, it's not that the garbage turns up when you do stuff. It's that it you're starting with it and you're going to get more of it just from the basic business of playing. Yeah. And I think um, the, the other thing that I think to me... So the other cards you can take into your hand to help you get rid of stuff um, and to f- fulfil contracts... Um, the fulfilling contracts thing you never take into your deck they're always going into the tableau in front of you sure and the other things that help you the, get rid the of upgrades. stuff you, you can play them from your deck but really you want to be putting them into your tableau as well that's certainly the better way if you can yeah because then you get to yeah. use them every turn so as I say, for me, I think it becomes this shedding experience of trying to to get rid of the the, the stuff you don't want, um, and a racing game of because you can only do five upgrades or contracts, you're trying to do that quicker than your opponents. Yeah. Um, I played it uh, a couple of times two player with with you and with another friend, and I also played it solo with the rules that you helpfully sent me because they've been taken down from BGG. Yeah, no idea what's going on there. No, um, they were they were broadly easy to follow. Um, I think there was one 
point that I wasn't certain on. Um, I think the, they say in the solo rules to use two, so that there's, there's bidding tokens in, in the game in your player color. Mm-hmm. The solo rules say to use two colors for the opponent. And then later on it talks about removing a card if there's two matching opponent's icons. And to me that wasn't clear if it was mm. two of the same colour or if two different colours both still worked. <clears throat> but, you know, it's a, it's a fan-made variant. Um, so perhaps we can't be too precious about it. I just, I, for me, I wasn't entirely clear on that point. Yeah. Um, perhaps unsurprisingly, since it's a... Uh, a fan-made variant. I did feel it worked better as a multiplayer game. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> what the solo rules did was to make sure there were always cards disappearing from the offer to keep that cycling through. Um, and at the same time, to to really emphasise that race element where you knew the game was ending soon. Yeah. Um, and I think that that tipped a little bit too far in that direction for me in the solo game. In the multiplayer game, there is that um, you're, you're watching what the other person does to see, well, they might be about to end the game soon, but I think I've got another turn here. And there's you're sort of you know, gauging that in your head. Um, yeah. Whereas in the solo game, you know it's coming fast and you've got a bit less time to, to play with and build up. Even from the early game, you know you're, you're up against it time-wise. So it really doubles down on that racing element. Yeah, I, I have played and quite enjoyed the solo. And um, Vicky, we've talked to you before on the podcast, is, is, is a fan of it. Uh, mm. For me, I think the fact that you, the, the, the opponent turn is always overtime is... It's, a, it's obviously a simplification, but it's an unfortunate one because it means you know, that they are much more of a timing mechanism than yeah. an actual opponent. Yeah. And yeah, we, we've we've talked about this before, and probably will again. That that you have to trade off um, realism of an opponent versus mm. complexity of running it. So it's it's, yeah. it's a fair decision. It's um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It it works. It just say I say for my taste, it tips it more towards that um, race than I prefer, and mm. I, and I preferred it and playing with other people than the, the solo variant. Yeah. Um, I, I would certainly agree. I, I think that's true. To be fair, most of the games that I can play, either, either solo or multiplayer, I do prefer mm-hmm. the multiplayer. Um, ideally, I prefer it to be the same game, but we'll, but we'll come on to that in a bit. Mm. Uh, yeah, so it, it's. I, I, you, you don't sound as if you, you, you're going to uh, rush out and look for a copy. I, I, uh, I'm not going to rush out and buy it, but yeah, it's it's certainly okay. We're sort of um, saying the same things here, aren't we? It's not a bad game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm glad I got the the opportunity to try it at long last. Um, but yeah, I think for me, it's, it's not it's not quite to my tastes. Um, I say that the fact that it's this racing game, mm. um, deck builders I've run hot and cold on over the years, um, but that the, the the core decision point in most deck builders of when to to flip from building up your deck to trying to win. Mm. That's kind of what makes them interesting. Yeah. And as I say, this it to me, it, it's not a deck builder, but it looks like one. Yeah. Uh, you, I was, I was missing that core decision. 
Um, you, there are there are other decisions, but they're mostly in terms of am I going to install this upgrade or just use it? Yeah, I mean, at, at the end of the game, you're still doing the same thing that you're doing at the beginning of the game. There's no progression in that sense. Mm, it, that I think can depend on which upgrades one gets and, and what sort of order. Well, because uh, I've, I mean, I've, cer- I've certainly seen games where my my last turns looked very different from my early turns because I'd but, got the right upgrades. Yeah, but I mean, most of those upgrades are only increasing the efficiency of your shedding. They're not giving you different things you can do. Mm. Yeah, I guess. So there's, there's that one that, uh, is it, uh, triple bid that makes quite a change. Uh, mm. Yeah. I'm not going to argue with you on this, clearly. But... <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Zenon Profiteer. Yeah. And you lent me Yggdrasil. And I did back to hmm. back to the Ragnarok, and I will admit I, I opened the rulebook and had two lovely experiences. One, it's in several languages, so it's a whole lot less thick than I thought it was. Um, <laughs> but two, a thing I hadn't realised I was subconsciously looking for: there is no separate solo rules section. It's a cooperative no. game. You have n gods. N is the number of players. And you could just play with N equals one, and that's fine. Yeah, uh, that, which is, as you say, lovely. <laughs> no special rules needed. No. Uh, it, it has that, um, I suppose we call it pandemic style, lots of things are going wrong in lots of places and you've got to sort them. Yeah. Uh, I did find, I, I played as Frey because that, that seemed simply, you, the, your special power is you have four actions rather than three. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I certainly fell into a rhythm which seemed quite effective. Um, mm-hmm. I, ob- obviously, in the early turns, the, the various enemies were advancing. Yeah. Once I got to the Valkyries to the Black Island, the, the, mm-hmm. be- the best of the islands, I got into rhythm. I could, I could trawl those, um, get two or three Vikings. Yeah. Uh, increase an artifact. Uh, re- refill the Vikings from, from the realm of the dead, and yeah. fight. Yeah. And. The, what is it? Uh, yeah, four, four, four in six, you're going to get at least plus one on the fight die. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sp- spend Vikings so that I need a plus one and then spend an elf if I, if I don't get it. Yeah, yeah. That's, God, model of efficiency, Roger. <laughs> <laughs> and then once the artifacts were fully upgraded, I started on the, on the, uh, Vanir tracks so and I could start pushing things back. I did notice, um, you're limited, because you're limited to doing each action once in a turn. Mm-hmm. And you say so you can only fight once per turn. Yeah. And so you can't actually push them back by fighting. You, you can hold them steady. But, you know, if, if you've got you know, four on row one and two on row two at the start of your turn, you're not going to be better than that at the end of your turn. Yeah, you, you can push one back and that's it. Unless you get some other bonus. Yeah. Uh, and realising that... As I was playing, but meant, okay, I probably should have worked a lot harder to stop them advancing in the very early turns because, yes. <laughs> yeah, those, those first four or five advances were the one, essentially set up the shape of the game after that point. Yeah, yeah. Which was really interesting. Uh, I, I did notice, um, when I unpacked your copy that, uh, that there are, uh, the double move cards in the deck. Mm-hmm. Um, I played it in standard easy mode, and once I'd survived that initial rush, I didn't feel a lot of tension. A, th- a third of the way through the deck, I was reasonably confident that unless something went horribly wrong, I was going to win it. Right. 
So I can I can entirely see why you would leave those cards in. Um, <laughs> but again, that that's not a strike against the game if if it's um, go, going if it's got a mode that's going to be easily winnable by not particularly brilliant at this sort of optimization puzzle, Roger. And it's yeah. still interesting to you as well. So, yeah, this is, this is yeah, not a bad thing. Yeah, I think, as you say, there's um, there's several different options with different cards you can put in and take out uh, to alter the difficulty of the game, which is welcome. Mm. And I, in the flesh, it's even more impressive. Uh, <laughs> lush lush colour, that is still useful. I mean, the colour the color is telling you stuff as well as just being mm. pretty. Uh, it, it, it's a splendid board in particular. Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, as you say, I think perhaps when we talked about the artwork um, last time, but it's perhaps not immediately obvious if you just go and look at images of the board online, that it's a very functional board as well. I think they've done a really good job on that. Yeah, you look at it and think, okay, th- this is a nice picture with you know, ver- various you know, mm. closed loops on it. Okay, that closed loop is where those things go, and that closed loop is where those yeah. things go. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and as I say, you know, a few turns into your first game, you, it, it all makes sense. Yeah, the, the uh, islands in particular didn't seem particularly obvious until I realised, oh right, it's one of each colour because of the sides on the die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I'm... Okay, cliche, probably not going to buy it, but I really enjoyed my time with it. Uh Good. It, it looks as if it's going for medium, ser- at least the edition that uh, you lent me, the, the original, is going for reasonably serious money at this point. Is it? Uh, That's interesting that that one's holding its value then, even after the the Chronicles version has come out. Re- recent geek market is um, 40 up to about 80. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, we spoke about this last time, I think it peaked over 100 um, a few years back. But yeah, as I say, it is interesting that it's it's still holding its value even after that Chronicles version has come out. Mm, and Classic is thirty to fifty ish at the moment. Mm-hmm. Sorry, uh, Chronicles. Right. So, yeah, it's really interesting to see one that I I completely missed. Um, it could easily have been that we were talking about Yggdrasil type games rather than pandemic type games. Hmm. The, the, yeah. there's, a, there's a lot in common, but it goes off in slightly different directions, and ones that I, I, I think I found more interesting. Mm. It, it's a, the only thing that would be nice would be if there was some way of affecting the adv- advance rate, so you can say, okay, yeah, th- this guy's getting far forward. I want to um, give up something else in order to make them advance less. But it, it, it would be quite tricky to arrange. I'm, I'm not blaming the designers for not doing this. Yeah. But yeah, I, I had a really good time with this one. Good, I'm really glad to hear that. That's uh, Yggdrasil. Okay, so joining us this week to talk about board games and mental health, um, we've got two returning discussants. Um. Start, I'm going to go left to right across my screen. There's no favouritism here. Um, Morton, would you like to introduce yourself first? Yes. Um, yeah, I'm Morten from Denmark. And since we have multiple voices on the podcast, you just, it can be hard to keep track of who's who. So the weird accent <laughs> is the guy with the weird name. 
Um, so that should be easy. Um, in relation to board games, I do solo mode for a living, mainly for Stonemaier games, but also for a few others, like Gaia Project from Feuerland and Glenmore from Fontales. In relation to mental health, I am bipolar. I got diagnosed something like five years ago, so I've been trying to uh, make that work with uh, with a job in board gaming and with board gaming as a hobby. Okay. Jason? Yo, my peoples. What's up? I'm Jason. I'm from the Shelf Stories YouTube channel. You know I had to get that in. Come on now. It's, a, it's this is branding. I'm going to, I'm going to, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna be at we, like we all know who it is. I'm gonna receive a Nobel Prize for something, and I'm gonna show up to like all these dignitaries and be like, "Yo, my peoples, what's up?" Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not gonna, gonna do anything worthy of that. Anyway, um, so I am from the Shelf Stories YouTube channel. Uh, you may remember me from uh, such podcasts as a couple weeks ago talking about board game burnout, and I yep. introduced myself as a psychotherapist. I'm still a psychotherapist. Uh, but I'm also a client, you know, I have a diagnosis of depression from many, t- from a while ago. I- I've had it for a while, uh, most of my life. And I mean, it's not kind of secret. I did a podcast about it, I don't know, maybe three, four years ago where I'd really kind of talked about a lot of what I've been going through. Um, and yeah, so like, I know it from both ends. I know it from treating it and I know it from experiencing it. So I'm eager to, you know, answer some questions and talk about it. Fantastic. So thanks for for mentioning why I invited you on. Um, I've, I was hoping you would. I didn't want to be <laughs> doing that for you. Um, from my own perspective, um, I've had mental health issues for a number of years. Um, I was diagnosed two or three years ago um, with PTSD and with boarding school syndrome, mm-hmm. um, which sounds made up, but isn't. <laughs> The, the the number um, one place in the world for bullying is boarding school. Yeah, yeah, and you know there, there's far more boarding schools in in the UK than any other country. Um, so yeah. Um, so I wanted to try and sort of tackle this um, from a, a personal, experiential um, viewpoint, but also bring in research where it exists as well. Um, so I did a little bit of research beforehand. There's, uh, helpfully, um, a review paper, which was published in, um, biological and psychosocial medicine in 2019. So three years, uh, before recording this, um, and that reviews papers published between 2012 and 2018. So it hasn't got the most up-to-date research in there, but it's fairly recent and we'll, it's a helpfully an open access article. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, so just to sort of summarize some of what was in there, I know I haven't sent this link to, to Jason or to Morton. So some of this, they may be familiar with some of that they may not be. Um, over that six year period, there were 83 articles published in peer-reviewed academic journals um, about board games and mental yeah. health. Um, over half of them, 67%, in fact, 56 of those articles, um, were about specifically uh, with within the education field. Um, just three of them, of which is 4%, um, were about social communication, um, which I thought was interesting. 
um, or public so social communication or public health policies, which is quite a broad range for, for three papers. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but other ones are talking more about basic brain me- mechanisms um, and preventive, me- preventive measures for dementia, which is what I was expecting more of them to be about. Um, and maybe that's a, a nice place to start. We don't have any personal experience of that, um, but that sort of um, dementia type stuff. One of the factors that I drew out of this, um, when we think about board games and dementia, we often immediately, or at least I often immediately assume it's about keeping the brain active mm-hmm. with problem solving. The point that they were keen to make in this article um and I'm going to read this verbatim. It says these factors could enhance individual social networks, which also presents against cognitive decline. Mm-hmm. So that leads straight into the the more commonly held bit of board games and um, and mental health. I'm going to say propaganda <laughs> <laughs> because I don't think it's always it's it's so often written as a this is good for your mental yeah, health, sure. but without being backed up in terms of the social interaction that board games provide. Mm-hmm. Um, Morton, well, all of us here, primarily solo gamers, but I don't think we ought to, to overlook that side of it. And I know for me personally, um, when I first started getting back into the board game hobby as an adult, I didn't know solo games were a thing. Um, I, I was researching board games and hoping to persuade my partner to play them with me. She has no interest. And I heard on uh, on the Dice Tower, I heard Tom Vassell talking about your local board game group as if everybody had one of these things. Mm. After about two to three years, I moved city and found a local board game group. And I made sure that I went every week. And I do think that helped my mental state having that. Because I, I was working alone at the time. I, I was freelancing and I was studying for a PhD. I, I was literally in a room on my own all day. So one night a week, I went out and interacted with other people. There may not have been people that I'd have chosen to interact with any other time, but it was a social interaction, and I think that helped me. Um, so I, I made sure I kept doing mm-hmm. it. I almost saw it as medicine rather than anything else. I don't know if that's uh, if that's something you've had much experience of professionally or personally. So um, the key... And this is kind of a secret sauce type thing in terms of a, so from a psychotherapist perspective. Um, mm. Social interaction is not inherently good. Uh, mm. Social interaction can be good or bad. You know, <laughs> mm. you know it's as uh, people yeah. say, okay, board games are social, but like if you go to some, you know, very cliquish uh, board game cafe and, you know, people are just like sitting yeah, down yeah. in their games and they kind of, you know, rude to you, they, yeah. they wait your turn or whatever it is. And that's not, that's not going to be very good. Uh, yeah, so there's no. the war gamer stereotype. Yeah. Well, I mean, unfortunately, we live up to the stereotype. <laughs> God forbid. I'm glad you said it. And not God me. forbid you show up to my local game night at 7.50, which starts at 7.30. Once you say, once you get 7.50, everybody's into their games and everybody's doing their thing. Uh, terrible. Anyway, sorry. Um, but anyway, so the, the, the board games, a social thing or social interactions is not inherently the, the magic pill. What has to happen, it has to be a certain type. Of social interaction, it has to be it has to be quote unquote safe, right? Yeah. Um, so then that's a that's a fraught word, right? And people don't know well, what is safe and da, da, da. Well, I think the best way to say it is a a place full of trust, 
Trust is the key. Trust mm-hmm. is the, it, within social interactions, you have to be able to trust the interactions. And so what makes a board game space, not just a safe space, but a trusting space. So the rules, these, these yeah. things that we don't like because they're pain in the butt, but like once you're into the rules, the interactions becomes, become predictable. Like, you know where the winning is coming from. You know where the losing is coming from. You know how to handle conflict. You know, all these things are just laid out where in real life you don't know. Like, the people can just take yeah. you by surprise, especially if you're suffering from mental illness. And, like, you know, someone will just, like, say some random crappy comment or, you know, they'll remark about a boarding school. It's like, oh, I love my boarding school teacher. Uh, well, it's <laughs> not everybody does that. Uh, <laughs> or, like, they'll say, okay, um, you know, uh, about depression. It's like, oh, well, that person is so sad. They need to get over it. And... You know, and it's like, no, that's not how it works. But that, that can happen in real life. That's the point. That can mm-hmm. happen in real life. And so you don't have that trust. You're always on your guard. Yeah. So, you know, in, in the outside world, it's not a place where you can trust easily. So you have to hold your guard up, right? So then mm-hmm. in board games, you can let your guard down. And, you know, if it's a good game, like, in, and the players are, you know, pro-social and, and they know what's going on, everybody knows the rules, everybody's a good time, yeah. then you can allow for, like, you can let your guard down and you can actually allow the interactions to kind of, like, do their mm-hmm. magic. So, like, you know, we want to be able to get to a point where, like, the minds are melding, you know, my, and that's, that's what, that's what keeps, you know, um, you know, like in terms of cognitive decline, Alzheimer's, that kind of thing. You mm. know, you want to keep those neurons firing. You want to keep those neurons connecting. And when in a good social interaction, you have to because you're connected with another person. So then, but the, the precondition of that is that you have to have a trusting space. And board games yeah. are great. They can be great at creating a trusting space, stable rules, uh, stable rules inside the game, stable rules of behavior. That's how that is. You need the, all that stuff mm. to come together in order to, to get the real good mental health benefits. Yeah, I think. I mean, I, the show notes that I circulated to everyone beforehand. I, I wrote um, board games as mediation for social interaction, and I think that's the thing. As you say, that when you come in, you've got you're presented with rules first of all, and those govern what you're doing on the table in front of you. As a fantastic definition of board game in this review paper, by the way, I'll repeat that in a moment. <laughs> Um, but there's also the unspoken rules that aren't the rules of the game, but how we're going to interact around the table. And those are the rules that, as you say, for a lot of everyday life is difficult. Mm-hmm. And when the focus is taken off them onto the, the board game in front of you, the other rules just sort of fall into place around it because they're not being focused on, in my experience. Mm-hmm. Morton, have you got anything to add to that? <laughs> No, I completely agree with everything you guys said, and it's yeah, helped to me to go to a local board game cafe. It's a volunteer-driven affair, and it's it's been great. Always been a positive uh, mm. experience going there. Some nice people, but I can definitely get what you're saying, Jason. That it depends a lot on how it plays out in real life uh, around the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when we talk about safety, right? I think that game, that that gets a bad rap. Right, because safety, I think people associate that with no offense, you know, mm-hmm. or like, you know, there's going to be no, uh, or we're going to go to lowest common denominator. We're not going to offend anybody. We're not going to tell raunchy jokes. We're not going to, you know, have risque material. It's going to be for kids. Yeah. Basically, it's like that's kind of the stigma, right? A safe thing is like for kids. Like, like a whole bunch of kid game. That, Let's play Rage for the Treasure. Let's play. That's going to be a safe board gaming time. Like, that's not safety. 
that that's you know safety isn't just the removal of difficult things it is actively pro-socially building trust and consent among people who are at the table so like if you have your person who you're caring for and i do have a couple of clients who are in cognitive decline uh Mm -hmm. you know i play yahtzee with them uh there was one person who um and i told the story on a dice tower review uh of a person, it was a couple, and the, and the the lady is older and in, in decline, but they remember playing pinball. So I played mm-hmm. Super School Pinball with them and walked them through, it's a crunchier game, so walked them through kind of the crunchier yeah. bits, but like she just lit up. And it was like, yeah. you know, it's like, wow. So like all that stuff, all the stuff. So like nostalgia was at play, uh, the actual problem solving was at play. Um, and the pro social, like remembering, you know, the husband was kind of there talking her through stuff. Like, you know, like we were able to kind of get past all the nonsense and come to a space of deep, like trust and love. That's where you want to be at, in terms of, uh, board games. So like when, you know, like you talk about propaganda board games as social, why we, you know, kind of talk about that mm-hmm. all the time. Like board games are not like we have to do it right. Yeah. It isn't a magic pill. It's like slap a board game down. Like, okay, let's be social now. <laughs> yeah. And I think you're, you're right as well to point out that safe doesn't mean, you know, safe for work. Right. <laughs> safe yeah. <for> radio. <laughs> you, you can have, you can have a safe space playing cards against humanity. Right. A game I've never played and have no wish to play. Right. Me neither. But Same here. you can also, you know, you can have an unsafe place playing snakes and ladders. It, it's not about the game. It's about the community, the group which is playing it and the environment that they create. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess uh, that what we just sort of touched on there leads into one of the other things um, that I noted down, uh, which was uh, board games as an escape. How much does this factor in? Because this, I mean, this, this is definitely something that is solo as well as multiplayer board games, arguably perhaps even more solo. I don't know... Um, I mean, if we're talking specifically board games, then yes, if we throw RPGs into there as well, then obviously that's a whole different form of escape that can involve large groups of people. Um, but that, you know, there's no less valid. I, I mentioned I was going <laughs> to, so the, the way that this paper defines board games, they say it twice, just to make sure you understand what a board game is. Board games are played by moving game pieces in particular ways on special boards marked with patterns. <laughs> also, Jason, you're an artist. Card games don't have a board. <laughs> That's why I'm denigrating my card games. Get out of here. <laughs> so now we all know what board games are. We can carry on. <laughs> Go ahead, Moore. You have a lot to say, but you, you create a lot of escaping in your games. I, I got to say about that. Yeah, solo games are a huge relief for me. Yeah, big escape from... Uh, mm from what I call the dark radio when I'm depressed, just goes in this loop telling me how worthless I am or going through all the bad stuff I've done in my life. Every time that a fool of myself is uh, brought up by this dark radio again and again. But with the right board games, I can uh, tune out that dark radio. And uh, I found some specific types of games that helps me with this. Mm-hmm. So they need to be taxing enough on my brain to uh, tune out the radio. Yeah. But they can't be uh, so taxing that I get paralyzed because I can't handle them. And when I'm depressed, I yeah. typically don't have the same brain bandwidth as I do when I'm not depressed. So I found a lot of games that hit that sweet spot for me. Uh, and they also mm-hmm. need to have the right kind of art and theme. They need to be be calming um, or the universe games where they're yeah. whimsical 
mm-hmm. hard work also works for me. Um, but war themes, for example, would be a no go. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I would ever put you find. Actually, I want to I want to ask um, more to step back a little bit because you you put your um, finger on something really important the inner uh, the dark radio, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, so speaking from the inner life of someone who is either depressed or anxious, and that's my main specialization as a as a um, psychotherapist. I do mood, so mood anxiety, depression, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. I talk a lot about the inner critic, and you have you you have called yours the dark radio. So maybe you could t- share a little bit about what that experience is like, and then we can kind of match that to like what games do to help that, but I want to get into that first. So tell me about your dark radio. Morning. Yeah, well, it's, it's awful. It's uh, <laughs> the worst thing I've ever experienced because yeah, everything is just bad. My brain just keeps telling me how awful everything is, how awful I am, how hopeless everything is. It'll never get better. Uh, yeah, I just want to crawl into a corner and mm. try to make the world go away. And the board games helped me do that while very few other things do going for a walk, which can help if I'm stressed out, for example. Mm-hmm. But that, that's, to me, dangerous. I'm putting it in air quotes. Um, because that gives room for for the dark radio. Because when I go mm-hmm. for a walk, there's not much else occupying my thoughts. Yeah. So I need something to do or it will wear me down very quickly. Did that answer the question, Jason? Yeah, I mean, like, I love the fact you call it a radio, you know, because the radio makes it sound like, you know, uh, I've had people call it a loudspeaker, like if they're in school and there's like a loudspeaker and like you can't, like the whole school stops, you gotta listen to what the the thing is saying. So I imagine in my mind's eye about like, you know, you're talking and there's just this like radio broadcast of foulness. Exactly. Right. And you can't get it. You can't like close the door on the foulness. Like you may mute it a little bit. Like you talk about going about a walk that mutes it, but it doesn't like, you know, get, they could go away. Yeah. Do you find Morton that depending on where your, where your mental state is at certain times, you're, you're more capable of playing different games than others, which isn't to say that they aren't all helping in the same way? Yeah, when I'm depressed, it needs to be fairly simple games. Again, like the only yeah. games I use, Sunset Over Water, Flourish, Herbaceous, mm. um, games like that, I don't know really know them, but they are all fairly mm. simple games, but just but have enough meat that you need to think. Yeah. Um, and enough to occupy your brain without really taxing yeah, exactly. it. Just, uh, just need to be enough yeah. to... Uh, to tune out the the dark radio or play a bit louder than it does. Mm. Yeah. And the other thing to note is that the dark radio is all emotion. Like it's all, it's nonsense. Mm. Like, you know, that's the thing. Like the dark radio is at, at the end of the day irrational. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's telling you that uh, you suck and that you can't do anything. But then at the same time, it's pressuring you to do all the things. Yeah. So, you know, you know, it's like, okay, you got to design all the games. You got to make everybody happy. You got to make, you know, uh, make, make a lot of money, make all the things in the world, but you suck and you can't do anything. And it's like, you lit, you actually like trace out. It's a profoundly irrational, yeah. um, emotional kind of reality being absorbed in the dark radio. And 
one of the reasons why board games, like simple board games, that you talk about the yeah. Oniverse, right? The Oni Rim. I know that's why yeah, one of your exactly. favorite, right? Oni Rim. That that one in particular. So then Oni Rim. If people, uh, if you don't know it, listen to a one player podcast. Then I don't know what's going on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, it's a it's card game, uh, and you're basically just you know you're you're shuffling the cards a lot, and you're fishing out certain cards depending on rules of the game, and you're symbol matching. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like you know symbol matching and shuffling. These are like very kind of unemotional, logical things to do. It's like, okay, sun, I'm looking for a moon. Moon, I'm looking for a sun or a key does this. And that it's a whole different part of the brain. So when we're in the dark radio, we're in this like kind of tuned up brainstem amygdala Mm -hmm. type space. But when we're in the logic brain, you know, like we've, we basically kind of like said, okay, we're going to tune down this part of the brain and we're going to do something else with this other part. We're going to wake up something. We're going to realize that we have a whole brain. It's not just like the one voice. And it's good to kind of, you know, opposites, you know, like you, you, you have fire, you know, put out water. Like, that, like a, a game like Oni Rim is like water to your fire. It just takes that one part of your brain that's like inflamed and irrational and stupid and just just for a little bit, you know, because the flame is huge. <laughs> and I mean, this this sort of strays, I think, into something that I perhaps separated out when I didn't need to on the, on the notes I sent around of board games is meditation. And what you were saying about Oni Rim, Jason, um, reminds me of uh, Patience or Solitaire, as it's commonly known in America. I think I'm probably the only person in the one player guild that happily admits to still playing and enjoying patience. And it's at those times where I can't cope with anything else. I can't cope with any other board games. I can't cope with whatever task it is that I'm meant to be doing. Um, And I'd written on the one player guild before, I think that I knew when I was getting really low, when I was playing patience more and more and more. And I think, for a long time, I, I don't know why, I never tracked plays of traditional card games on BGG. A couple of years ago, I started doing it. And then one day, I logged 30 plays of Patience. And then the next day, I logged 60 plays of Patience. And I, yeah, this, this just really confirms what I already kind of knew. I am not in a good place right, right now. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like um, like I talk about water and fire. It's almost like foam. Like you're trying mm. to foam the fire. You know, you're not putting it out. I mean, it's, 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 it's better than it was because you played it. Uh, but you're trying to awaken. I mean, it's the same reason why counting sort of works, like anger management. They tell you, like, you mm. know, take a walk, count to 10 or whatever it is. Like, or you're, or like, you know, you can't sleep because you're in this emotional space. Count sheet. Why? <laughs> why? This makes no sense. Why? Uh, <laughs> but like, this is, it, it works for mm. those for whom it works. It does work because you're taking that logic space. And you're trying to give that a little bit of attention, that logic space, for the express purpose of calming down the emotional space that is trapping you mm. and causing all this upsetness. And it doesn't work like long term. Like we need other things in order to kind of really be healthy. Like we need, you know, social, we need purpose, we need all these other things, but just in terms of like a coping skill. Yeah. You and know, like to get by, you know, that's the, all that stuff is great. That's really, really important. I think for, for me, at least uh, of, you know, and I'm, I'm going to guess for all of us on this podcast, um, the age we are, the generation we are, escapism was seen as a bad thing, right? 
that's people that can't cope with life that's you shouldn't be doing that you should be able to just cope with life and i think escapism in the sense we're talking about it here it's a healthy thing it's a positive thing it doesn't mean you're running away from life as you say jason it's a coping thing that helps in the short term calm your mental state before you can move on and hopefully move on a little bit stronger a little bit better prepared and able to cope with things that's interesting um the the escapism thing like martin what do you how do you think of like, because escapism isn't the same thing as like you know playing a, a quick game, right? Escapism is a whole big thing. Like, how do you navigate that? In your, I'm not sure. I'm uh, aware of the exact definition of escapism. Um. So I, I think generally involving some kind of fantasy that you're you're escaping from your life to to another life temporarily. Yeah, as long as it's temporarily, I think it's a good thing, and uh, mm. I think that's uh, generally accepted in the circles I. I go in. Most people I know are. Mm. A lot of people I know are also geeks. Um, so uh, mm. it's become so mainstream, and in Denmark too, uh, or at least in my circles, to be geeky that that's okay. Um, yeah. But of, not just in your circles. Yeah. Look at the the most popular movies. <laughs> Mo- movies are a prime example of escapism. You know, the, the, the cliche of James Bond, or, or women want him and men want to be him. That That is escapism, the wanting to be James Bond. You don't believe you are. You just, for a moment, you think, oh, what if? Yeah, and I think that could be good to some extent, as long as it doesn't take you away from real life uh, for too long. Mm. And that, to me, games could be seen as a form of escapism and in a good way. Yeah. So just helping you step out of life, the immediate situation you find yourself in and those cares and just for an hour, a couple of hours, being yeah. able to think about it's something else. But it can't take over. I remember when I first got into solo gaming, I sort of kept myself awake, got out of bed after my wife fell asleep and sat playing a lot of the rings, a little card game. A lot of night and got too little sleep, which... L- lying awake at night trying to think <laughs> No, I just got bed. up and made it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's uh, not a good thing if you are bipolar. Or I, I'm guessing many other issues that uh, sleep is the best medicine for a lot of ailments. Yeah, for, for pretty much everything, I think. Um, and I mean, that sort of takes us into something else again that I jotted down as the notes of the the detriments of board games to mental health. I, I don't want this podcast to pretend that board games are this fantastic thing. Play more board games, your mental health is going to be great. There are downsides right. as well. Um, we talked about lulls and board gaming and how that sort of affected things in a, a previous episode with Jason, which, you know, there is some overlap, I think, there between that and this topic. Um, there's also... Um, I, I, you know, I mentioned a specific example there of sort of um, obsessive behaviour. Um, Morton was sort of talking about that with Lord of the Rings, the card game. Um, it also falls into if you're obsessively taking board game geek and you've got to buy the latest game and th- that kind of thing can be an, an unhealthy behaviour. Yeah, I've never had this uh, I need to get the new game. I think that's at least I've never felt it as, a, as a, something that uh, caused yeah. problems for me, but I, I can see how it would be, could be. 
Okay, so joining us for the second half of this discussion is uh, is Ashley. Ashley, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Ashley Pollard. I'm a retired cognitive behavioural therapist, war gamer. I have, uh, from a health perspective, uh, rheumatoid arthritis and the medication for that unfortunately caused suicidal ideation. So I have to now take antidepressants uh, to be able to... Um, not have rheumatoid arthritis destroy all my joints. And I'm a war gamer and role play gamer and I write rules and I make models. And unfortunately you missed all the negative things we were saying about war games in the first half of the discussion. <laughs> so I mean the, the flip side of that then we talk about you know the, the more the more general benefits of board games to mental health as, as we've been talking about up till now. Um, and I also put, made a note in the notes of any specific conditions or examples where board games can have helped. And I, I'm going to just quickly refer back to this review paper, um, which Ashley won't know about, but I've mentioned a couple of times during the during the podcast. Um, so, so this review of um, all the research that's been done into board games and mental health. So in case studies and case control studies, board games were shown to effectively improve symptoms in individuals who experience panic attacks, as well as those with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and Alzheimer's disease. On the other hand, and this sort of ties in nicely with detriments, one study revealed possible hazardous effects associated with playing of Go in individuals with seizure disorders, which I thought was interesting. <laughs> um Continuing on from that uh, further down, players' depression and anxiety levels were shown to decrease significantly during a six-week stress management intervention that utilised shogi games. Which I'm, I've never played shogi, but I'm aware of it vaguely as a you know a traditional game that's popular in certain parts of the world. So, Morton, I know we've spoken a lot about your personal um, experiences with board games and mental health. So perhaps um, with Jason and now with Ashley here as well, with we can talk about some of these, um, some of the specific conditions that they've been aware of board games helping with mental health. Oh, you can start, Ashley, if you uh, want to. <laughs> no, I feel very much on the back foot here. Um, so mm. can I talk okay. again? Oh, okay. I'll, I'll get it. I'm also a CBT therapist. I'm actually uh, practicing uh, with a private practice in here in Hartford. Uh, okay. So um, actually, uh, Lee, you asked a great question mm-hmm. because I did a whole episode on this of my old podcast uh, of the, the like, board games that I use in therapy. Mm-hmm. And I have treated, I have not, I, I treatment and I like, you no, know, like I solved it. I did not solve any problems, but just kind of introducing things that could help. Um, anxiety, depression, trauma, um, the ADHD, like attention yeah. stuff. Uh, and I think that's, those are the big ones that I treat in my sessions. Uh, and like anger. So anger is not an official diagnosis, but mm. you know, um, but those in things in that cluster, uh, you know, so in terms of depression, uh, oh yeah. And also cognitive stuff so like, you know, what, and we talked about that before with, you know, how, um, games can help with promote cognitive function. Uh, especially as, you know, people who are experiencing some decline. So then, yeah, I mean, I think my biggest one 
is like anxiety and depression, like, you know, getting that connection and building that trust with people. So like any game, any game theoretically can do that. Like any game, uh, in terms of the card games, like, you know, I play a lot of Uno. (laughs) I love Uno. Uh, and I played Uno in family therapy, Mm -hmm. like, like Uno, I love Uno. Um, you know, as like the thing, it's like, okay, uh, difficult family, you know, dad is arguing with kid and, you know, mom is going nuts and everything. It's like, all right, pause, time out. I'm going to play, let's play, let's play a big game of Uno because it's so easy to teach. Yeah. Like it's the, it's easy to teach and it just has just enough to, you know, make people feel satisfied and, you know, clever. It's like, okay, I'm going to match this. And I play with stacking. I play with draw twos mm-hmm. and all of that stuff. Um, so like for whatever reason, Uno was just like hits that magic sweet spot for me in terms of like games that I've actually used, uh, to, you know, over to lower the temperature on things and be build pro social, um, interactions. So that was like the big one, uh, in terms of, uh, kind of diminishing anger and all that kind of thing. And also just like, you know, reaching a person. So like, you know, that's what is depression? Um, you know, Morn will tell you all about that. Depression is just, you want to just close a door on everything. Yeah. You know, and you, you want to just a, a board game, like a, a, a low um, complexity, but decently fun board game can open that door again, you know, and, and build that trust, you know, but that, that I, at the beginning of the podcast, I said was so important. Uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to extol the virtues of Uno. You have to stop me because I cannot make well, this Well, I like Uno too, so just go on. <laughs> I mean, I'm not gonna play it just like, oh, I'm not, you know, this is a game night. All right, everybody, come over. I heard it's the only game you play, Jason. Oh my god, are you kidding me? <laughs> this is all a, this is all mask. This all, all these board games behind me are masks. It's all Uno all the time. Uh, but just like as a tool, mm. you know, it's it's one of my most successful tools. Um, and in, in terms of treating those very like like mood oriented disorders, mm. you know, that's that's my specialization. I, I do mood or mood disorders. And there are certain games that just work depending on I mean, what it is. And like in terms of a graduated experience, like Star Realms. Right. Perfect. Star Realms is perfect. My God. It's like, it's, it's, it's easy, you know, and, and, it, and it, it creates that intimacy in it because it's like a head to head. Uh, and it creates those, those, those pop moments of like, wow, you've done five damage, five damage, 50 damage. What did I do? I mean, that's <laughs> take us into, to more Great. modern board games again. I think that was interesting. I was about to say to you with Uno, um, a lot of people have grown up with Uno and sure. my, my mom insists that she's never played Uno. I keep trying to explain to her that Crazy Eight, which was a game we played a lot, is the same game. <laughs> <laughs> So whether she knows it or not, she knows the game. She's familiar with it. And I think you know, for for people our age and older that didn't grow up with video games, board games were a thing you did with your family. And that isn't to be underestimated. You're instantly tapping into those, um, you know, those happy hormones of, of, of nostalgia. But also you've got that connection to the safe place we were talking about. Yeah, definitely. Is that fair? Good. <laughs> Ashley, have you got anything you'd like to add to that? I know you're you're feeling a little bit like you've just come into the middle of something here. <laughs> I have. And, you know, I didn't use gaming in my therapeutic mm-hmm. practice within the NHS because that would have been a little bit too um, left yeah. field mm. um, for, you know, for the yeah, NHS. Yeah. Uh, um, 
my colleague in America obviously have works under different strictures, I, I'd imagine. Oh, yeah. Um, but, uh, what is, what is national medicine? Are you yeah, me? no, we, we could have a, <laughs> we we have have a whole other discussion about um, the troubles of mental health therapy on the NHS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, uh, yeah, and I don't no. want to derail the discussion with that because that would be a whole other discussion. Um, from my professional, uh, I'm a cognitive behavioural therapist, so I'm very much about behaviours because um, that's where my training mm. first started under Professor Marx at the Institute of Psychiatry. So I, I don't fully embrace behavioralism as the be all and end all. But I do think that behavioralism is the foundation and that I kind of reverse the, instead of think good thoughts, do mm -hmm. good things. And then you'll think good thoughts uh, as, as the paradigm that I would work in therapeutically. So it's very much about if you're depressed, it's about doing something, even if it's just a little thing that mm. you enjoy rather than trying to think your way out of the problem. I'm very much a, uh, a proponent of of walk yeah. your way out rather than think your way out of a problem. So playing games within that respect, um, um, you know, it, it would be mm. a tool. But unless my client came to me, and I can't think of any clients in my practice. No, that's maybe not true. But I, the, the number I could think of would barely fill a handful um, that had hobbies. I mean. You know, within the practice I've worked with, getting people to read mm. books is a thing because they just don't read yeah. books. Um, so getting them to play games, uh, you know, just out of the question, unless they already come into mm. it with, you know, I play games, I play D&D, &D, mm. I play Warhammer. Mm -hmm. I've actually had a few people who play Warhammer 40k and, and stuff. So, you know, and that's great because that allows me to go, oh, 40k, oh, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> My friend uh, uh, Sandy Mitchell, uh, uh, Alex Stewart, who is an mm -hmm. actual friend of mine, uh, Sandy Mitchell wrote the books and therefore yeah. create a connection with the client. Mm -hmm. um, but probably unlike uh, my colleague, and I'm sorry, I've forgotten your name already. Jason. And your name is not followed <laughs> on the screen. Um, so, um, oops. Um, I'm very much of Professor Marx's perspective that the therapeutic relationship is not sufficient unto itself to affect change. Right. You actually have to do an intervention, whether it's a cognitive intervention or a behavioral intervention. Uh, you have to do something because change doesn't occur without doing something and, it, and it's not sufficient just to think mm -hmm. about a problem so that's why i think games are great because you know you do stuff mm -hmm. you escape your thoughts mm -hmm. you know i do teach mindfulness i used to teach mindfulness as a way of escaping your thoughts um so yeah um and going back to war gamers, which I know you... <laughs> not, not in any great depth. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> I mean, I think one of the issues from, specifically in anxiety disorders rather than depression is OCD, mm. which is obsessive compulsive disorder. And yes, I think a lot of war gamers and for that matter gamers can get a little bit lost in that compulsion to obsessively have mm. everything right. And that can increase, definitely can increase anxiety.
yeah. I think that's all I want to say. It's a bit random. No, that's good. And you made... But you can now see me on the screen. You made huh? some good points there. And I think, yeah, the, the difference between um, thinking and doing. I know, you know, when Jason was talking earlier, referring back to, to Morton's Dark Radio, I think, from for my own experience, you know, you can know that these thoughts in your head are not true. Objectively, you know that. You just don't feel it. Now, that's interesting because, as I said, I had mm. suicidal thoughts. And certainly the feeling, yeah. they, they were there. But the the motivation to act on them, partly because I'm, I guess, of my 20 years of, you know, working in mental health, I never felt the mm. need to act on them. You know, I could separate that the thoughts mm. were occurring and wondering, um, you know, what the heck is happening here? Mm. Why am I having these thoughts? Uh, because they weren't just the odd random thought that anybody can get, you know, you're, you're standing somewhere and a, a thought comes, or what if I mm. jump off that building? Which could be considered a suicidal ideation, yeah. but unless you're going to act on it, it really isn't. Um, and this is a complex area of, of cause and effect, you know, do, does, and the research kind of supports this position that behaviors happen first, thoughts follow. Um, so if you're starting to act, uh, act on suicidal thoughts, then there's obviously something going on that's quite complex. Um, even so, I got to the stage where, you know, I'd done everything I, I know how to do and I had to go to my GP mm. and say, give me medication because <laughs> the behaviors weren't so, you know, I've just contradicted myself, but therapeutically, um, we are all it, idiosyncratic. It goes back to that point that you, you know, mentioned uh, of not uh, being able to think your way out of the problem. So, yeah, exactly. take doing something that takes you out of yourself, out of your, your current headspace, which is where board games come in, in one way of doing that, um, can be of a benefit. Yeah, as can medication, because the medication whatever biochemical stuff was going on in my body. And, you know, some of this, we are biological yeah. beings. We aren't, yeah, you know, we are animals. We're beast I, machines. Yeah, that, that's I important. And I, I do think, you know, if yeah. there's two things I would like people to take away from this podcast, um, <laughs> don't be afraid to admit to Uno. yourself if you've Uno got mental Uno. health problems. And don't be afraid to seek help. And that can include medication. We're not, for the love of God, we are not saying... Play a board game, you're going to be fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But if you play a board game, mm. you'll probably feel a bit better. <laughs> well, actually, uh, speaking of, I, I just remembered another thing that I did, uh, and this was one of my favorites. Uh, so I'm a big RPG, mm. parent, RPG person too, and I've been a Dungeons and Dragons player for a very, very long time since I was a kid. And I have a kid uh, who, at the, at this point, she's a young woman. Uh, the time I had her, she was like 17, super depressed. I mean, my just low, 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 uh, anxious and all, all the stuff. And, uh, I knew she was, she like, she was a magic yeah. player and she was getting into D and D. And so I was like, you know what? Let's just make you into a character. Like, you know, if you had stats, what would your stats be? And that challenged her because like, if you just leave it in the dark radio space of like just pure emotion, one intelligence, one <laughs> dexterity, one constitution, all this kind of stuff. So it's like, okay, well, let's step back. Let's take stock of your life and what you've done. And, you know, like, let's really put some stats on here. And she's like, okay, I guess I would be a, I'm not bad looking, maybe like an eight, 
nine charisma. It's like, okay, great. Note it. And it's like, okay, uh, my constitution is like this. But like, wait a minute, you've overcome a lot, you know, and you're still here. So maybe your constitution is a little bit higher. It's like, you know, 12. Uh, and it's like, you're really smart, you know, 14, intelligence or whatever. And then we, we went through it. And she's like, wow, that looks like a badass. And I'm like, that's you. <laughs> like yeah, she was at my Intcon warlock. So like we we made up this yeah. whole thing about how she's a warlock and she had like a dark pack and stuff. So like you know we, like we, you I was able to use that intervention. Uh, speaking to your point, actually, it wasn't just like therapeutic relationship; it was like an actual intervention, but game focused. And to get that, we call it the observing self, right? Step out of the the soup, step out of the the, the cloud, the nonsense, the radio broadcast. Step away from that. Assess use some kind of intervention to kind of to, to rebuild the self-esteem and you know get a more accurate view of self and she was able to use that she we still talk about it like i still i like i call her by her dna name mm-hmm. you know whenever i want her to like kind of get out of whatever soup she's in because you know that's what happens right yeah. you get out of it and you slide back in and you get back out and you slide back in blah, blah, blah. so yeah. uh yeah i mean it, there's a whole bunch i mean and not to say that uh i think that's one of the things we're talking about the limits of board games uh, you know, not to say that every board game works. I mean, sometimes you throw a game down and it's a flop and it's like, <laughs> that sucked. Uh, that, that's not, that's no good. And also like, you know, board games can be fields for people to, you know, realize arrest development type stuff. It's like they're, they're not being mature in the situation. They're not respecting, mm-hmm. you know, the social cues and, or whatever it is. Or, you know, hobby games can be really complicated and they can be intimidating to people. You know, it's like, oh, you, you throw this game down. It's like, oh, this is a simple game. Uh, you know, we'll just I'll just get to get you through it. And then it's like, right. ugh, they can't get it. There was that um the 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 video with Mandy Patek Mandy Patekin or whatever his name is. Did you see that? Yeah, I saw that Mandy Patekin. Yeah, yep. they, they were trying to teach him wingspan, and he felt like a real idiot. And it's like, this is an IQ <laughs> test for idiots, and I'm failing. <laughs> what does orthogonal mean? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that word that we all have to learn in board like, games and nobody else on the planet understands. <laughs> we we forget how complicated these games are and how heavy and how into it. Like for us, and the fine because mm. we're used to it. We've gotten the reps, and so it's like imagine doing that. Like you're gonna, you're so excited. You have your older person. You want to help her or him with her cognitive decline. You put the game down, and it's like woo 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 woo. You have to know this. You have to know this. Like that could turn a person off and be and like actually yeah. create harm. You know, so like you got to be really careful, like with any tool, like board games are a technology at the end of the day, they're a tool and tools, they do certain things. They don't do certain things. So like, I'm not going to say board games are wonderful. Do it, you know, like, like any tool, you just have to get good at it and like, and get to know the, where the and applications there's a are there as well. I mean, you know, I can chop down a tree faster with a chainsaw than a regular saw, but if I've used a regular saw beforehand, I'm going to make a better job of it. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I'm going to go around here. We're sort of get reaching towards the end of the normal discussion length we have. So I'm just going to go around and ask you individually if there's anything that you would like to mention um, that we haven't mentioned or in Ashley's case that, yeah, we haven't mentioned in the second half. <laughs> Make sure we get those points. Um, Morton, <laughs> is there anything you'd like to, to bring up? Well, on the topic of, of helping, like Jason mm. talking about, I got quite a lot of emails over the past five years with people telling me Mm. how the solo modes I've made has helped them through difficult times. could be depression or physical uh, 
physical injury that they need to get over and yeah. stay sane while they were locked in the house or the hospital or, or whatever. Um, so it's also, it's not just for people with a mental health diagnosis. It's also just for people who are, for some reason, in a tough situation. Mm. Uh, yeah, I've had several mates like, yeah, like that. I think that's also important to keep in mind that it's perhaps a bit wider than what we have been talking about. Yeah, yeah. And those have got to be the best emails to receive. Yeah, that's, that, those are good, particularly when I'm uh, I'm listening to my dark radio. Yeah. And, uh, such a yeah. day, it was great. <laughs> but uh, sometimes I think that what are you doing with your life on? Why are you making board games? Why are you not out doing it real different in the world? Mm. Doing something uh, meaningful. Um. I can come in on that. Um, we're only ever ourselves, you know? Uh, even if you're Elon Musk, you're only ever Elon Musk. Um, and unless you're Elon Musk... <laughs> <laughs> you know, the resources you have to command and the good that you can do or evil that you can do for that matter is limited by the degrees of freedom that you have from your position as a person within a society, whatever that society is, you know, because I'm not just assuming it's, it's Britain and London and whatever, uh, or India. So sometimes just doing the simple things, even though they can appear to be uh, trivial, they're still important to do. Um, Gandhi was very much about that. You know, he said, uh, it's, it's important that you do whatever it is that you're going to do, regardless of how trivial it is, because it's important for you to do it. And if you do, if you act in a way, if you like yourself, or maybe you don't like yourself, but if you, if you act like the person you'd want to be, who would be likable, then you will do good automatically because you'll just, you'll just be likable and doing things that, and getting on and, and that will just ripple out. And it's very small. It's almost quantum. Sorry to use that buzzword, but I've been studying quantum mechanics, but, so you're, you're, you're just changing one particle. You are that particle. You're, you know, you're doing the measure and that ripples out and affects across, uh, the whole human spectrum of society. Chaos theory, you know, butterflies, <laughs> wings, storms and stuff. You know, um, if you're Elon Musk, of course, when you flap your wings, you have a much bigger effect. But we can't all be Elon Musk. We just have to be ourselves. Yeah, I, mean, I love that butterfly thing. Like, can I think about Morton? We we talked about this. We had a, an email conversation a couple, about a month ago. Um, I saw a post on the Viticulture group. Oh, no, it wasn't Viticulture. Red Rising. Uh, Morton had worked in a solo mode for Red Rising. And the person had played Red Rising and then didn't couldn't get a group, so they played the solo mode. Like, wow, this is a great game unlocked by the solo mode, found the books, read the books, and Jack, I, like, all of a sudden had this, like, no, this, like, thing to get into that distracted them from the other problems. And who knows? Maybe that person was an EMT or a teacher or somebody who helped people. So it's like, okay, that one little thing, ripple, 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 ripple and then it, it, it created, like, you know, something good on the other side. So, like, I think, um, 
I think like every every little bit helps. And that's why uh I resist the whole it's just the game discourse. You know, like it's not just the game. Like it's not it's not the end of the world, people. I'm not saying like, it's it's you know, uh my my friend Ashley will tell you this is not a black and white people. This is not like it's just the game versus it's the, the everything. Like there's a gray here and in the gray is the little the little things that we could do, the little pro social things we can do in games, the way ways in which it helps and all the other stuff can have ripple effects, can have ripple effects for us in our health, in our in our stuff. Or we could make somebody else's life a little bit better because we're a good gamer, because we're a good partner, because we're making games and like, you know, I I hear you, Morton. Like, okay, why aren't we out curing cancer? Why aren't we out, you know, like, you know, Greenpeace and all that kind of stuff? And it's like, I don't know. Like, we need a social fabric. Like, and that's that's what yeah. games are. Games are a part of our social fabric. So if we can contribute that little patch of the quilt, then I think that I'd, makes. I'd me say feel our, good. our focus is wrong. When we say games aren't important, it's not the games we're talking about. It's the people playing them. Yeah. They're just tools. They just they're just tools to facilitate us getting together. And, you know, if it was easy for us to get together, we just do it. And, and, and <laughs> it's not know, easy for us to get together. Any sort of career angst you may have more than this is turning into a weird sort of Morton <laughs> intervention. Any career angst you may have Morton <laughs> It's not confined to board game design. Twenty years ago when I first started studying archaeology, there was somebody I vaguely knew in a pub who found out that's what I was studying at university and he came up to me and said, um, So what I want to know is what's archaeology ever going to do for me? I said, well, I, what do you mean? I don't, I don't understand the question. He said, well, and he sort of paused for a moment. Well, will it ever discover a cure for cancer, for example? No, no, it won't. <laughs> so I answered that question. But if that's your overriding, if what you're doing, will it discover a cure yeah. for cancer? Then, yeah, there's very few professions that are worthwhile. <laughs> Yeah, and that's a really big question, isn't it? I mean, what makes life living worthwhile? I mean, it's it's kind mm. of something I've grappled with because of my own health issues. You know, mm. uh, the sense of ennui. You know, what am I doing? You know, why can't I motivate myself? Well, sometimes you just have to be kind to yourself and just cut yourself some slack and go, well, you know, yeah. I'm here doing what I can, you know. Most that's of the time. better than doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on the thing. That's a whole other discussion. Philosophy coming in there. Uh, I have a love-hate relationship with philosophy. Um, you know, uh, for obvious hmm. reasons, psychology comes from philosophy. So I, I definitely have a love-hate relationship with it. Um Okay. Well, while we're with you, Ashley, is there anything else that you would like to like to point out? As I say, I know you weren't with us for the first half. Yeah, of the I missed half but... all the. And you were talking about how bad war gamers were. You know, we're terrible beings. <laughs> we that that was all we talked about for half an hour. I don't know nearly enough about war games to say <laughs> one way or the other. So you are completely ripping out of here. I don't think I've, I've I've not played a single war game. David Thompson is one of my most favorite people in the entire world, but the I have not played a single of his games because I don't play war games. Mm. Well, but you know, RPGs, especially Dungeons and Dragons, is rooted in war. Games. Oh, sure, I know that. But like, you know, um, it's inverted enough where it's like, okay, anytime I see like multiple dudes and I have to control multiple dudes, I'm like, I check out. 
Oh, yeah, uh, that's an <laughs> interesting point. Again. I mean, that's just a, a really interesting uh, observation about how we interact with the game mm-hmm. uh, and the game interface. And mm. I'm very much a believer that it's horses for courses, that, you know, it may not be to your taste, in which case that's fine. You don't like this, that's fine, you know. But we have all these uh, different um, choices so we can find something that you do like. And I do both RPGs and war games. And I, my war gaming is very much narrative driven. So I'm, I'm much more about campaigns, uh, you know, generating a story with the battle. And that reflects in my writing because I also write um, fiction and I published fiction. And mm-hmm. to me, that there doesn't seem to be that disconnect that Jason suggested because to me, it's it's one dude, many dudes. I wonder if it goes to the heart of this um, when we we're talking about board games and escapism earlier. If we're talking about... Um, the, the the level of interaction with the game. Perhaps you can feel more immersed if you're playing one character. On the other side of it, if you're controlling most, multiple characters, perhaps that's giving you more of a feeling of controlling the world that you're in in that moment. And both of those can be a good thing, depending on the the mental state you're in, the help that you need. Yeah. I mean, in wargaming, I find a lot of people, a lot of players, imagine themselves as the general. Um, I don't generally mm. play war games at the level where I'm the general. I'm much more down as the company commander, but that's still a lot of dudes, mm. <laughs> as Jason would say, you know. Um, and certainly when I write up narratives, um, I focus on the individual because one would, you know. Yeah. Um, but then again, I also like the kind of stories where you get the the villain's perspective or this other person's perspective on what's just happened. So I think it comes down to, you know, whether you're playing the game to be in one character or in many characters, it's just a matter of taste. It's not a matter of one is better than the other. It's just a matter of taste. Jason, final thoughts. (laughs) Final thoughts. I mean, I love Morton. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the idea of like the, I mean, and just jumping off of Ashley's thing, I can't say it better than that, the butterfly thing. Like, you know, we do our little things and we add to the fabric. You know, we, we somehow resound in the fabric somewhere, seven links down the chain, even when we don't see it, even when our dark radio like obscures that and makes us feel like nothing. Like we matter and board games are a, a mediation tool amongst many. You know, we have to be board gamers, uh, but there's plenty. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not saying that board, like to, to your point, Lee, about like, mm-hmm. you know, board games aren't the end all and be all. It's one tool, but you know, yeah. amongst many. And so I want to like find that middle ground where it's like, okay, it's not the, not, it's not meaningless, but it's not the ultimate either. It's just like one tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I want to affirm the value of that tool to, you know, get us out of that little, whatever hole that we're in. Yeah. Well, we're so very good as human beings of digging holes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and jumping right in and staying there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's reached that point of the show where we uh, we ask you all if there's anything you want to plug. 
Um, I'll go down to the same sort of order that we started with things. So, I mean, Morton, I, I, I'd like you to plug two things, which is the first time I've said that. But first of all, you're doing some very interesting things at the moment, trying to help Ukrainian refugees. Mm. I'd, I'd like you to talk about that. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm trying to organize uh, board game events for refugees uh, with the local um, board game cafe. Um, is there uh, any way that people can help if they want only if they are in the the Bellarup area of Denmark you never know we may have a listener there (laughs) other than yourself money travels money travels as long as they if they got a Venmo or PayPal yeah it's it's pretty but it's not a matter of money it's a matter of manpower Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, yeah I found some people through the Sabotkin Cafe who want to volunteer as teachers. So uh, the next step is uh, we're waiting for for the yeah the board <laughs> of the association that runs the Botkin Cafe mm-hmm. for them to uh, to take the next step. Okay. And, uh, get Fingers crossed, you get that sorted soon. Yeah. Okay. And the other thing I thought you'd like to plug, um, I can't remember if we mentioned it when you were on before. But you're actively playtesting your own game. Yeah, uh, been working on a game for for the past five years, roughly, um, called Scavenger. Uh, Contraction to Damien's words because it's based on uh, Danish folklore. Um, and now I was plucking the Universe series and uh, Onirum mm-hmm. a lot, and so I need to say that the developer of my game is the designer of the Universe games. But in my defense, I'll say that I've been uh, shouting from the rooftops how awesome the Universe games are way before I even met him uh, Shanti Torbe. So yeah. uh, <laughs> I'm not just <laughs> plugging him now because I have a sort of financial interest in, uh, in him. So, uh, oh, and who did you reach out for cultural consulting for that game, Morton? Yeah, some some kind. I think was it Mason, ah. Jason, something like that. <laughs> yeah, um, Jason is a cultural consultant on the, the game we had. Uh, Excellent. There's a little little bit of a religious theme in it, and uh, I want to uh, to ask Jason's opinion on that. I trust him quite a bit more than myself uh, in something like that. Happy to do it. Just and anytime you have an iteration you want, just send it on over. I'll uh, guide you through. It's great. It's, it's great. Find you. Fun story. And if people want to get in touch with you, the best place to find it is on your BGG blog or other places. Yeah, BGG. I'm Morton M D K there or Morton at AutomaFactory dot com. Uh, AutomaFactory is uh, is my company where I make solar modes. Okay. Jason, I'm sure you have plenty of things to plug. Eh, two things. Well, one, my YouTube channel, Shelf Stories, continues. Uh, I mean, I have lots of stuff. I'm, I'm actually slowing down with it this year. I haven't released as much stuff. It's been kind of a, a little bit more of a trickle as I get into other things. Um, but I still have, you know, weekly conversations. And, and, and you're doing some really interesting stuff there with your case stories at mm-hmm. the moment as well. But the, big, the big initiative is the case files. So case files is mm. um, short for cultural um, – I, I, What's my own acronym? 
You'll be fine. Cultural appropriation, stereotyping, and erasure. My thesis is that every, when a board game does something like, you know, oopsie, uh, in the cultural space, it's along one of those three things. So then it's my filter through which I analyze games. So I've done two games so far. I've done, um, Lost Rooms of Arnak, which is right there, by the way. Anybody who says I'm hating on Arnak, please, it's right there. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll vouch for it. I can see it over Jason's right. shoulder. And my second game, I still have it here, Lewis and Clark. Uh, mm-hmm. and that one was a little bit more of an oopsie. Uh, but I mean, it's not just to knock on games, it's to make them better. I, mean, I have lots of suggestions about, um, it, it's, it's constructive. Yeah, I try to be constructive all the time. Yeah. Uh, and so it's, that's a video version that it's like, you know, the 20 minute videos are very condensed. They're very thick, but they're very detail oriented and like very forward looking. So that's the big initiative right now. Those take a long time to make. So please don't ask for like those every couple of weeks. It, it, uh, it, it really, it really shows though. They're really good. Yeah. No, and, and they're, they're the kind of culmination of what I've done on the channel. Uh, and then also just kind of connected to very close connected to that. I am a cultural consultant. I've consulted on a few games at this point. Uh, the biggest game that, that people know about that I can, I can talk about is Burn Cycle. Uh, Burn Cycle from mm-hmm. Chip Theory Games. I was the cultural consultant on that one. Uh, and there was a, a, there's a bunch of other games, including one very, very big, uh, project coming in October. I cannot talk about it yet, but I, I, it is huge. UT. People. <laughs> <laughs> Keep an eye out for, uh, I did, a, I did more than consulting on that game, but it was along those lines of culturally appropriate stuff. Uh, so lots of exciting stuff, uh, here. If you want to, if you want to contact me, you can contact me, Shelf Stories GBL, uh, Games Books Life on Twitter, uh, Shelf Stories Consulting. Hopefully I'll have a website soon. I'm working on it. Uh, you can hire me for your uh, consulting needs. And so that's, that's basically it. Okay. May I plug a third thing? <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> then I'd like to plug Shelf Stories and Jason. Ah. I'm uh, privileged. Can I plug Jason's show guys? And I've been uh, learned a lot from Jason over the past couple of years, both from show stories and from uh, emails, where Jason has mm-hmm. been very gracious with his time and uh, helping me understand things. Um, so, yeah, that's my third plug, Jason. And is it worth adding that if you're not inclined to watch YouTube videos, you can also get some of the most. shelf stories, most, most yeah. of the shelf stories audio on the one stop co-op shop podcast. That's correct. I, I, sorry, Mike and, uh, Peter and whoever runs one stop co-op shop. Uh, yeah. They, they, they don't listen to this, Jason. They don't. Know. <laughs> <laughs> most of my stuff is available on podcast form if you're not a YouTuber. Yeah, sure. One stop co-op shop podcast on SoundCloud. Ashley, is there anything you would like to plug? How people can get in touch with you if they want to? Well, I have a website. It's my name, Ashley R. Pollard. Uh, it's a blogger, so mm-hmm. it's on blogspot.com. Um, you can find out about my two different writing series that I've got. Um, my Gatewalker trilogy, uh, which is a near future, uh, science fiction series. Um, think Stargate cross with Starship Troopers, sort okay. of, sort of. Um, it's my my big thing. And then I've got another series which deals with a Russian civil war where Belarus has broken away from the Russian Federation. And I wrote this a few years ago. I, you know, it's amazing. Uh, and I've, I, you know, unfortunately, oopsie, I've got it from the Russian perspectives and there. It's, it's the grunts, you know, it's the officers mm-hmm. and the, the grunts, you know, being caught in the, in this whole horribleness. And then from a gaming perspective, I've just 
written a set of rules called Big Little Wars that are currently kind of going through playtesting. They're a war game. So Jason will go, no, don't want that. Um, <laughs> um, uh, which deals with um, near future warfare, um, ideas about uh, how future conflict, uh, I'm interested in conflict resolution. That, you know, as a therapist, I'm mm-hmm. interested in conflict revolution, resolution. So the war game is about conflict resolution, about the disparities between technologies. So the game's very science fictional, uh, set in the near future. It has mecha and it has people in technicals, you know, Toyota trucks with machine guns. So it's all about how I think um, this is all going to play out and why war is almost inevitable. Not eternal, but it is because conflict is always inevitable. People always have different opinions about stuff. Yeah, I was going to say very topical, but as you just said, it's always topical. Yeah. (laughs) So that's it. You know, my books and at some future point again. Called Big Little Wars. That's the title. Well, thank you very much to all of you for joining us. Thank you. Um, I think it's been an interesting conversation. I hope it's been a helpful and interesting conversation for for people to listen to as well. Um, and really, you know, just to, to emphasise on that, if, if you are struggling with anything, yes, board games can help. Don't be afraid to reach out to other people. And if you know anybody that you think is struggling, don't be afraid to reach out to them either. Um, Thank you very much. And uh, we'll move on now to other things. For joining us, it's been more games than time. Um, do please try and join in the discussion on our forums at tekeli.ly. I'm sure Roger put a full link in the, mm-hmm. in the show notes. Um, and also, you can support us by buying merchandise on our Redbubble store, which you can find at tinyurl.com slash mgtt. We also have more games than space, so we're selling some of them. If you're interested, there's a link to our auction in the show notes. See you next month. Mm-hmm.